What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the director for Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro. As a disclaimer, the original audio for this interview was lost and we had to use a backup file, which does involve some background noise such as keyboard typing and other noises. What you're about to listen to has been edited to the best version it possibly could be given the circumstances. We apologize for the inconvenience and we hope you enjoy the interview. From my many wanderings on this earth, I had so much to say about imperfect fathers and imperfect sons and about loss and love. I've learned that there are old spirits who rarely involve themselves in the human world, but on occasion, they do. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but (laughs) you don't. A story. Of the wooden boy. I feel as though you've been here before. The wooden boy with the borrowed soul. Be his son. Fill his days with light. We shall call you Pinocchio. Oh, what a day, what a day. Hello, Guillermo. First of all, it is such an honor and a pleasure to be chatting with you. Uh, You're one of my absolute favorite filmmakers, a true champion for cinema. And uh, I just want to start off by saying that. Thank you so much for all the extraordinary work that you've done over the years. No, thank you. The opposite. Can you hear me well? Absolutely. Great, man. Yeah, so I want to first start off uh, by talking about your latest film here, uh, Pinocchio. It's been titled by some people Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio to differentiate it from other versions of the story that's been told before. And you obviously have a very unique uh, spin on this. I believe when I ran into you at AFI, I mentioned something to you about how you took a classic of my childhood and made it a classic for my adulthood. Uh, Can you talk about what it was about the story that you wanted to update for? a modern and adult audience through animation? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, it was very important for me uh, to make a movie that was of a piece with Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone in a way, and sort of um, completing this idea of childhood and war and innocence and experience, you know, how you, you know, through your early years, you, you become who you're going to be on the rest of your life. And it was important as the years went by with the projects, we started talking about it early 2000s. And uh, it was uh, in, se- in several forms, the basic story that you see uh, transformed through the years and um, deepened partially because I, I, you know, when you're a father, 
and your your children grow up and they talk to you back they tell you this is how you were as a dad you become aware of that and then as your your father ages which mine uh, did and passed away after shape of water you also deepen your understanding of his role as a father so the movie was very important for me to make it about disobedience truth life fatherhood laws you know these themes uh, resonate and deepen the notes of what is undoubtedly a classical tale you know and uh, i think um, when when we thought about it uh, we thought it would it would contextualize it really strongly in the sense that this is not what you think mark mark gustafson came up with a great line which is uh, it's a story you think you know but you don't <laughs> that, was, that was mark's um, idea and i thought it, it really it really defines the movie in a way yeah mark gustafson your co-director on this film You've had so much experience working with practical effects, prosthetics, animatronics, uh, stop motion animation. So where did Mark come in in terms of like filling the gaps in that collaboration with you with bringing us to life? Well, actually, Matt, I started in, in stop motion. I mean, I started my shorts and my I used to teach uh, stop motion in high school. I had a company that for 10 years we did stop motion makeup effects and optical effects in Mexico. And I was supposedly going to start with a stop motion feature before Kronos. Mm -hmm. But we, I, although I have photos of the workshop and the puppets that we did and the sets, on the first day of principal photography, uh, we got burglarized. Stop. And they destroyed all the puppets. No. Yeah, now the, 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 what I have is photos of us sculpting the puppets when I was in my 20s. And then I went to Kronos. But also, I, I've been directing and co-directing animation at DreamWorks Yeah, for almost a decade. I'm producing, you know? And I think um, that's not the learning curve. I think what, what, it, what I was preparing for was to truly co-direct uh, I developed the screenplay and the look of the movie uh, through the years. And Mark, I think, came in 2015 mm -hmm. or 2017. You got to ask him. I was, it, and then he came in and we really fused in the decision making of the of the day to day, you know, but it was a real collaboration. And that I had practice with Rodrigo Blas. On, on at DreamWorks, we co-directed a couple of the episodes of Troll Hunters, mm -hmm. but but with Mark it became deeper, and it became about trusting each other, uh, that that each of us wanted to make uh, the same journey with the movie, and it was. I am happy to report that Mark, I respect and love Mark not only as much but more now than than ever before. So. In between Shape of Water and the release of this, you go off and you do Nightmare Alley. Uh, I remember overhearing you say that production on Pinocchio was something like a thousand days or more than a thousand days. So when you're off doing Nightmare Alley, is everything put on pause? If not, what is happening uh, during that time with development on Pinocchio? Actually, actually, COVID 
COVID made everything line up in a strange way because wow. then we were launching. We Mark and I launched every shot of this movie together, and when we did it for a long, long time, we would do it by Zoom uh, because we would do it in the middle of COVID. Yeah. So uh, let's say a typical day in Nightmare Alley would be in the morning, launch shots for Pinocchio, mm -hmm. and uh, at the end of the day, uh, approve shots done already by Pinocchio. Yeah. So we, we started and ended our day with Pinocchio every day. And it was only natural because COVID created a, a waiting moment on Nightmare Alley and a slow production moment. Nightmare Alley was completely done, but Pinocchio was slowly ramping up. So I was able to <laughs> marry both of them. That's amazing. I mean, I don't know when you ever found time to sleep during all of this, but... <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't. I don't. And, and that's, that's the other thing. It, it, it not only did... It, it made Nightmare Alley, Pinocchio, and Cabinet of Curiosities happen all in the same... Uh, two years. It was yeah. it was really really. I I was sleeping four to five hours a day. Yeah. Jesus. Well, you have a couple of uh, collaborators on this project who you've worked with before. I want to talk about Desplat's score for a minute here, and I want to talk about what it is about his work that has you uh, coming back to him. What what type of feeling is he able to conjure through his work that elicits this kind of wonder imagination emotion what 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 is it about him i think that uh, alexander has a unique voice in composition he reminds me about one of my favorite composers george george uh, de la rue mm -hmm. you know who was able to evoke so much emotion but an emotion that you don't experience ever in the real world is 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 so much beauty that is above nature like it is it's a beauty it's an emotion that has never been but you but it reminds you of your childhood and your purity or it has a a, a very very pristine soul and the collaboration with alexander is effortless yeah but we have to be in front of each other mm -hmm. it is it is not he sends music i respond we gotta be in the same room with a piano and watching the images. Yeah. And he, he suggests idea that I completely agree with. Like in Pinocchio, he said, why don't we use only wooden instruments to, to make the movie? And I completely thought that was a valid and beautiful experiment. And we did it, you know? I think that, uh, uh, and then we would see it and I would say, the main theme has to have the simplicity and the purity of a lullaby. And he would play four or five versions, and I would uh, say that one, you know? <laughs> it, it, but, but he is a unique author, yeah. Where, where did the uh, decision come into play to have there be uh, songs, original songs created uh, for this film? Because, you know, I, I think that a lot of uh, people will immediately think of the original Disney classic and some of those uh, iconic songs, but these are not similar in that regard. These are very much their own unique original songs uh, yeah. made for this project. Well, the, the, idea, the idea was there from the start. We thought about it as a musical from the start, and uh, 
what we thought Patrick McHale, who co-wrote the screenplay, he suggested a great idea. He said, why don't we have the characters sing for the first half and then let music from the era, fascist uh, songs and fascist hymns, be the musical component of the second half. And I thought that was really, really interesting to, to try. And uh, Patrick and I composed one of the songs. I, I, I mean, the lyrics, the lyrics, Alexander composed all the music. I tried my hand at doing the lyrics of uh, the lullaby, my son alone. But then after that, we partnered with Katz, uh, uh, who's, who's a, a really close collaborator of Alexander in the past. And we sort of created the ideas and some mm-hmm. of the phrases. And, and then Katz uh, uh, became a really important part because he, he would break the lyrics into the metrics and the needs of the of the music and and uh, he really we wouldn't have been able to do it without him i'm allison holland host of the kennedy dynasty podcast equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the kennedy family i am joined by an incredible cast of experts friends and guests to take you on a fun relaxed yet informative journey through history and pop culture from book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself you'll see that there is so much more to kennedy than just jfk or conspiracy theories join me for the kennedy dynasty podcast i feel like i saw techniques used in this that I have never seen in stop-motion animation before that completely blew my mind. Uh, You obviously have an incredible eye for framing, shot composition, and there were certain sequences in this where I forgot that I was even watching an animated film. I thought I was actually watching uh, real, like, these animated figures come to life right before my very eyes. Though as if you shot it, you know, uh, with real people. And part of that also is some of the facial uh, animation on uh, David Bradley's Geppetto. That's some of the best animated acting in stop motion I've ever seen. There was actual lip quivering. It, it was unbelievable. And I just, I want to first of all, give you props for that. But also too, what was uh, a cinematic technique that you could think of off the top of your head that you and your crew said to yourselves, Oh, we've never tried this before, but you were pushing them to achieve it. Actually, actually, it's a combination of things. We went backwards on uh, the, the cutting edge of animation in stop motion is to print the faces. And you do a, a sampler of faces and vowels and consonants and expressions that the computer prints on a 3D printer. Uh, but to us, to Mark and I, that was too smooth. And Mark and I, uh, collectively decided to, we said, let's go back to to mechanical puppets, which means you have a puppet with a structure and then you move to become expressive and lip sync. That was almost going back, but we went to the cutting edge of that technology. And then I was discussing some ideas and we had tried some ideas of animation on troll hunters that I thought were a good path. And what we did is we said, let's animate mistakes, quote unquote, let the characters make unnecessary gestures. And the animation needs to be really, really subtle. No pantomime, no exaggeration, no sitcom rhythms, no poses that everybody has seen in animation. You know, 
the, that you have seen a thousand times, timid, defiant, you know, like none of those things. We, we said, let's see what the character is thinking and what the character is feeling by micro, micro gestures mm-hmm. on the face and the body. So we animated very quiet moments, which is completely counter to what people expect in animation. Everybody expects these high rhythms because, unfortunately, in the West, we have this notion of animation being a genre or a medium, a genre for kids. And it's a medium. Animation is art. Animation is film. And it can allow subtlety. And we said, let's animate silence. Instead of shooting the character talking, shoot the character listening. Those are techniques or, or decisions that are not common in animation. And I think partnering, you know, as much as I say it's great to share duties with Mark, Mark is a, sup- a superb underground director to deal with every moment of weakness, every moment of decision with the crew of animators. He is himself a great animator. So he was, he was the, the fusion of crazy decisions that have not been tried before and the capacity to rally the troops to, to keep them alive for a thousand days of shoot. It's crazy. Yeah. We, we were getting mad. We were getting incredible dailies on week one and we were getting incredible dailies on the last days of shoot. Well, the animators never way, uh, trembled, never hesitated, and we treated them like actors. And that was why the decision was to credit them on the front credits mm-hmm. next to the cast. And uh, I must say, I agree with you. The other decision, I, I jokingly say, this could be called the adventures of Geppetto <laughs> because we wanted to give Geppetto a beginning, a middle, and an end. Spoilers ahead, but Geppetto cannot deal with death on the beginning. Yeah. And it ends up with the serenity of death at the end. It's a full journey. And in the middle, I think that puppet and David Bradley did probably the best acted parts in the history of the medium. Yeah. I was blown away by it. It truly took my breath away. Uh, Me too. Yeah. It, it it was something that I felt like I, like I said, I felt like I had never seen anything quite like it before. And uh, kudos to him, too, on just like a phenomenal voice performance. Yes. Talk a little bit about uh, visual effects and stop motion animation. They've been around for many, many, many years. And we've seen, I think, uh, a res- uh, not like, I think we've seen renewed interest in the behind the scenes working of stop motion and realizing that there's actual production design at play. There is a lot of visual effects work that goes into it. And in a way, it is starting, I think, to be treated uh, by people as a form of live action, like in its own right, by recognizing some more of these uh, individual crafts. So can you talk to me a bit about the visual effects work that goes into something like this and how it differs from a... Gladly. The first thing that is, and by the way, before we move on from David Bradley, yeah, his was a part that was written for him. Oh, okay. We, we have worked on the Strain and Troll Hunters, and I'm writing another part right now for him. Oh, that's he's great. One of the great actors, and, and, and I, I have a great relationship with him. And uh, 
I, I, to trust him, what I think is the most difficult part in the film. Mm-hmm. It was a real letter, love letter to him. Now, on, in terms of the technique, stop motion is the closest animation comes to live action in the sense of it being linear. Yeah. If the character is going to move from here to here, the movement is linear. It happens in real time and space in a way, but 24 frames a second. And you have the analogy that you're shooting real cinematography, real set, real props, uh, real light, but you're doing it, uh, I say, in, in the same level of artistry than a full set, uh, in the same level of artistry of a full costume, mm-hmm. you have, but you have to miniaturize the fabrics. You have to miniaturize the aging of the wood, the veins of the wood. It's incredibly uh, elaborate, uh, and, and that's why I say stop motion is to live action like Ginger Rogers is to Fred Astaire. Yeah. We, we do the same steps, but backwards in high heels. <laughs> it, it really is an incredible display of the crafts uh, that, we, that we deal with here. And uh, frankly, we did it with an impossible amount of uh, attention to detail. Uh, We researched the sets with photography, period photography, even the most uh, outlandish sets are based on on real photography and research. The wardrobe was researched for period, for fabrics, for colors. The cinematography, the way Frank Passingham does it, he does these moving gogos that move frame by frame to simulate light like a cloud passing when we're shooting in yeah. exteriors. But we do one exposure to the key light, one frame exposure to the fill light, one frame exposure to the moving light, and then in color correction, we can sandwich them perfectly. But Frank is like, between a renaissance painter and a mathematician is keeping all in his head so it's extremely hard to do because also when you were mentioning the acting style and we do we make the characters for example geppetto fights with a balloon in an abandoned amphitheater like he gets tangled with a balloon if it was like that's an improvisation but because we're doing it 24 frames a second, you have the rigs and the cranes holding the balloon and you have to prepare. But Frank did the same with the light. Frank wanted the light to not be static. So many of his lights are moving. Not only the search lights, the fire light, but even something as subtle as those clouds. So I, I, I just uh, think... Um, there is a, a museum exposition at MoMA coming up, showcasing the artistry of Pinocchio. And I wish I could get everybody in the world to MoMA to, to see that before they see the movie or right after. Because Mark and I sometimes wonder with, with Alex, our producer at Shadow Machine, we say, how, how did we attempt this? Yeah. It was an insane amount of work. I, I I mean I can't even imagine like can can you break down for me what one second of film twenty you know what one second like equates to in terms of man hours? Well, if you think about it, one of the shots took between rehearsal and shooting 
16 weeks of shoot. Jesus. The animator that animated the Sphinx and Pinocchio in the limbo, he was in that set for over two years. One animator never left that set. The entire production. Wow. And our average a week is only a few seconds. A week. Yeah. So it's incredibly... And, and at the end of the shoot, as I said, uh, we were shooting with more than 60 units at the same time. Mm-hmm. So uh, 60 lighting packages, 60 cameras, et cetera, et cetera. You, some, some of the units were coming down. Some of the units were being assembled. But at the same time, in different stages of production, more than 60 units. Uh, considering the arduous and just journey to get to the uh, the end goal, the end goal here, and the reception that the film has received so far, uh, is it something that you would want to dabble in again, or is it I've done my piece and this is going to stand for me? Oh, oh no, no, no! Listen, uh, I very, very pointedly started around, uh, in the early two thousands. I decided I'm coming back to animation now. Mm-hmm. That's why I went to DreamWorks. Yeah. That's why I uh, produced animation. That's why I, because I want to land back to where I started. I started on animation and uh, unfortunately got derailed somewhat uh, because funny enough, Matt, the same equipment that we used to in my production company sustained the early years of stop motion animation in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And that crew that was that was that started in around that era is the same crew that animated in Guadalajara, Mexico, part of Pinocchio. So it's full circle, and I'm here to to stay. I would like my next movie is live action, but I'm already writing and preparing the next uh, couple of animations. That's great to hear. Uh, that was going to be my uh, final question: was what's next for you ultimately? Uh, but I think no matter what it is, whether it's animation, live action, could be anything, I, I always know it'll be imbued with the heart of a true storyteller, and that's what you are, sir. So Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure. See you many times this week, I'm sure. I'm sure. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the producer, director, and screenwriter for Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is available to stream now on Netflix and is up for your consideration this year for Best Picture and Best Animated Feature. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.